And this now in this series, we have one simple goal, and that is to help every believer understand that God has acted to give you a new life in Christ. Notice I emphasized in Christ. In Christ is a new position. Before you were outside of Christ, but when you believed in Jesus, you were brought into Christ. And God, through that faith, has united you to Christ. And as a result of this new union, you have blessings new realities that God has given to you that did not exist before. So in this five-part series, we're looking at five specific blessings, five realities that are true of all of those who are in Christ. If you look behind me last week, we started this series, and Alex preached on your new identity in Christ from Ephesians. This morning, we are going to be looking at the fact that you've been given a new spirit. Then you see we have three more sermons looking at your new family, that's the the church that you are part of, your new purpose, that is that God has a a very specific uh, reason in bringing you to faith, and it's not just so your sins are forgiven, it's so that you can participate, not only in the church, this new body of faith, but also that you participate in his mission. And then we take a look at your new future. The beauty of uh, being in Christ is that our future is certain. Uh, God it does not give us a hope of one day being in heaven, meaning, as we use the word hope, he has given us a, a assured confidence that just as Jesus Christ has died and risen again, one day you will rise again. And so as we turn to John chapter 14, we think about this new spirit. I wanted to point us towards a text that will help us see the promise of the new spirit. I want to go specifically to Jesus. When we come to John chapter 14, maybe you know uh, the circumstances, the context already. If you are not familiar with this passage, then I'll cue you in. John 13 through 17 is all one account of Jesus' very last night with his disciples before his death. And when Jesus is with his disciples on this last night, and by the way, we just had communion this morning, and the, the passage that we're in and the story we're about to, uh, to uh, look at is when Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. It was his last night with his men. And during this last time, this, this, uh, this uh, special fellowship, this intimacy that Jesus is going to have with his disciples, he tells them something he hasn't told them before. And he tells him in John 13, 33, he says, Little children, yet a little while, and I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot go. For the first time, Jesus tells his disciples that in just a little while, he will no longer be with them. They'll be looking for him, they'll seek him, and they won't be able to find him. Now this causes Peter some concern. Remember Peter's response? John 13, 36 to 37, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says to him, Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow. You need to feel the weight of what Jesus said to his disciples. This is their last night with him. He tells them something that they had not foreseen, they had not understood. They understood that following Jesus was basically a straight line into Jesus establishing the kingdom and then Jesus fulfilling the kingdom. Now Jesus tells them, I'm not going to be here. Now all of this leads into our study of a new spirit because in the midst of Jesus' disciples genuinely being confused and genuinely being fearful, Jesus says this to them, John 14, 15 to 17. Read with me. It says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let's move to John 14, 25 to 26. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am with you. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all, to, all that I have said to you, or bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Lastly, let's skip to John 16. John 16, verse 7. And Jesus says this in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. May God give us wisdom as we study his word this morning. We praise God for the words of Jesus. And we praise God for his words of life to us. So this morning, our goal is quite simple. Jesus has just told his disciples and he has informed us that he will be sending a helper, a spirit. And the goal of our time studying this morning is that we want to build a correct theology or a foundation to understand who is the Holy Spirit. And to do that, we're going to be looking at a number of key passages. We're going to be looking at God's Word. And I would say our normal way of preaching and teaching the, the Scriptures is to take a specific text and then to specifically what we call teach expositionally. What did the author mean? And how do we arrive at teaching and preaching exactly what the author intended? We come today where we're more on a topical study. We're going to take a look at a theme of the Holy Spirit. We had the same desire to be faithful to the Scriptures, but we're taking a look at, we wanted to have a uh, faithful biblical summary, not just faithful biblical exposition to a specific text. The reason I point that out is if you have been a part of River of Life, then you know how we preach and teach the Word. And this sermon is going to be a little bit different. As a topical or a theme, we're going to have many scriptures that we're going to refer to. And My goal today is not to dive deep into one, it is to paint broadly. I want to give you a framework to properly understand the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say? When we, we look at all the things the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, what does it say? And I'll give you three ways that will give you a framework. Here's your outline for today, and it's... Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? How do I partner with the Holy Spirit? This is our guide for today to help you give a framework. We're going to be putting truths that answer these questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? How do I partner with the Holy Spirit? So let's begin. Let's look at who is the Holy Spirit. I want to put in front of you three specific truths about the identity of the Holy Spirit. The first is that the Holy Spirit is God. He is part of the Trinity. One of the most clear passages that we could take you to that talk about the person and the nature of the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus himself. And it comes from Matthew 28, verses 18 to 19. If you want to turn your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 28. You'll be turning in your scriptures quite a bit today. You have two options. Obviously, we're going to cover a lot of ground. You feel free to take a picture with your phone of the uh, outline behind me. We can send you the notes in PDF form or whatever version is helpful for you. But let's look at Matthew 28, 19, uh, 18 and 19. You know these verses very well. This is the Great Commission. But notice what Jesus combines here. He says, Jesus said to them, this is at the end of Jesus' ministry. He has gone to the Father and he is now sending out his disciples. He says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One of the clearest references to the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, and God speaking of, or Jesus speaking of, of God as Trinity, is the Great Commission right here. Where we see Jesus say, Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we see Jesus clearly teach about the Trinity, and he clearly treats the Holy Spirit as a person in the Godhead. 
In Paul, turn to 2 Corinthians 13 to 14. Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit in a very similar way. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 14. And notice this Trinitarian statement that Paul uses here in Corinthians. Trinitarian, when I use that word, if that is unfamiliar to you, Trinitarian simply means a tri-unity, a three-in-one. It's a word that we use to describe the nature of God. Here's what Paul says to the Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and he's speaking of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul, in his writings, often references the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here, in his, uh, in a sense, a, a, a blessing or a prayer for the Corinthians, we see Paul say, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Here's all I want you to see. Note clearly that the Holy Spirit is a person. The reason I say that is because there is a lot of theology today that is not treating the Holy Spirit as a person, but is treating Him more like a power of God. More like the fact that He's just outpouring of God's blessing on our lives. Is that when we want to see miracles, when we want to see God act, we pray for Him to pour out His Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit is some kind of thing this force, this blessing, this miraculous power that God pours out. But that's never how the, whole, the, the Scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit as God Himself and as a person. He is not an impersonal force. He is God. Equal to God the Father and equal to God the Son. First point of building a healthy theology, the Holy Spirit is God and He is a person. Secondly, Let's take a look at the identity of the Holy Spirit by looking at the promise fulfillment of the New Covenant. Emil has uh, already spoken about the New Covenant as he introduced communion. And we need to see that the Holy Spirit, when we talk about who He is, is the fulfillment of what we call the New Covenant. Now, when we say New Covenant, maybe if you're tracking with me, your mind is thinking, well, what? was the Old Covenant. Anybody go there? Anybody alive this morning? There we go. Alright. If there's a New Covenant, that means there must have been an Old Covenant. And the question that should come to your mind is, why is there an Old Covenant? Why is there a New Covenant? Is the New Covenant better than the Old Covenant? Can you just choose which one you want to be a part of? Well, I'm kind of in the Old I'm old school. I'm in the Old Covenant. I'm new school. I'm in the new covenant. Let me tell you about what the covenant is so that you understand why the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Let's talk old covenant. The old covenant is what we call a, a conditional agreement. It was a conditional agreement, basically when two parties come together and they make a promise, right? They shake hands. There's two parts of the contract. When we talk about the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant was given to Israel. We often think of the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? Is that in your mind? Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. This is what the Bible calls the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was a conditional covenant. That means that uh, God made certain promises to Israel, and Israel had certain regulations or certain stipulations that they had to fulfill. And the Bible calls these blessings and curses. If Israel walked in God's ways, they would be blessed. If Israel did not follow God's ways, they would be punished and judged. And Israel was punished and judged. That's a conditional covenant. God's covenant, the old covenant, was, was not like we think of what God is doing in Jesus Christ. We'll get there in a second. It was conditional. God called Israel to himself. He gave them his rules and he said, if you walk in my ways, this will be your blessing. You will stay in the land. I will give you food and rain uh, or rain for your food. Uh, I, I will uh, bless the, the, uh, the, uh, your offspring and that you will grow, that you will stay in the land. You will be protected from your enemies. And we know the end of the story. We know that Israel 
eventually was swept out of the land. The Bible says that basically the land vomited them out because of their great sins. They began to worship other idols. They began to disobey. So, the old covenant was conditional. And when we come to the new covenant, God does something that is completely unexpected. It's because God moves from a conditional covenant, basically, if you do this, I will do this. I will bless if you will walk in my ways. The new covenant makes an unconditional promise that God will forgive us our sins, that God will be our God, and that God will help us follow Him. Let's read for ourselves about the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to to 27. When we talk about the new covenant, we primarily find new covenant in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. We're going to look at a passage from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. Listen to the new covenant. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all of your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. By the way, take a look at all of the things that God is going to do. Remember I told you the first covenant was conditional. Look at all the things that God is going to do. We noticed, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you from your idols. Now he says, I will give you a new heart. And here's where it connects with our passage today. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrates his love for us that when while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, God entered into a new covenant with us. Nothing that we did deserved the new covenant. But God in his graciousness did away with the old covenant, recognizing uh, that the old covenant, and by the way, just so you know, the old covenant was never supposed to produce salvation. It never could. God's plan was never for the old covenant to bring about the salvation of his people. The old covenant was to show that no one can save themselves. Romans 3 will explain when Paul writes his great thesis on uh, salvation and the gospel, he points out everybody is guilty. Nobody can keep the law. Galatians chapter 3 gives us the image. It says we were held uh, under custody by the law until the time was fulfilled, until God determined to enact the new covenant. And so the old, the old covenant was, in a sense, it, it was holding God's people in relationship with him until God, in his wisdom, would send Jesus to enact the new covenant. Okay? So the Holy Spirit, if you notice right there, it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The promise that we see in Ezekiel 36 is the very same spirit that we see Jesus promising his disciples in John chapter 14 and John 16. The Holy Spirit, when you talk about his identity, he is the promise fulfiller. The Holy Spirit is the new covenant coming to live inside of us. Let's take one more look at the Holy Spirit's identity. And we're going to take a look at John 14 again. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. Paraclete. When you think of paraclete, you might not be as familiar with that word, but when John 14, verse 16 says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper, that word is paraclete. In verse 25, uh, or excuse me, verse 26, it says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, that word, paraclete. Depending on your translation, you might have the following words. You might have the comforter, the advocate, the counselor, or the helper. Does anybody have those words in their translation that they're looking at today? Comforter, helper, advocate, counselor. Well, it's all one Greek word. It's all the same word. And what we should know and understand is that the Holy Spirit, His identity, His very identity in His very name 
is that He is our helper, our advocate, our counselor. Maybe the, the best way to, to explain this, when you buy a car today, I think most of them have some kind of Navi or GPS. Maybe you have an old school where, you, uh, when I was uh, growing up, it was TomTom. I don't know what it was. And you had a, you, none, none of the, the, the cars came with a Navi. You had to buy it and you put it in. But today, I think, most cars have a Navi or your phone, right? So I don't have a Navi, just put my phone right up there. Well, let's just talk about a car that has a Navi. When we talk about who we are, when we talk about how uh, we are in our flesh, the Navi on inside of every person is completely broken. You can't trust yourself. The Navi inside will never lead you to heaven. God had to give us our own personal God. If you, if you want to think about what the new covenant is, it, we're using an auto illustration here, folks, so bear with me, right? These, these aren't perfect, but what you want to see is this. Inside of us, or inside of our broken down car, is a Navi that will never point us towards heaven. In fact, the scriptures tell, me, tell us there's a way that, that uh, seems right, but in the end it leads to death. The Navi that's on your car, the Navi that's inside your heart, will not lead you homeward. It will not lead you to heaven. The only way that happens is that God literally has to give us himself. He gets in the car. He basically says, don't follow that Navi. Listen to me. I will tell you turn by turn. If something goes wrong with the car, I'll tell you how to fix it. Basically, anything that you need to get you home, you can trust me. I can help you fix the car. I can tell you what's wrong with it. I can help you get home. But whatever you do, don't follow that Navi. That's really what God has done in giving us a new spirit. He has given us, in a sense, himself. And in giving us himself, he is going to guide us home. We have somebody in the car. But here's the thing. This is why I use that illustration of the car. Is we're still driving. And I can go anywhere I want. I can take this turn. I can take that turn. The Holy Spirit doesn't sit in the driver's seat and tell you where to go. The Holy Spirit has been given, in a sense, he is in your life, and he will always point you the right direction. He will always tell you, that's a wrong turn, that's a wrong turn. Don't go that way. Road is out. And so this is the idea of what the paraclete is. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, here's what I'll promise you. I'm sending the helper. That helper will sit down, get in your car, if you believe in me, and he will lead you home. He will remind you of everything that you need. You say, I don't have the owner's manual memorized. No problem. The owner's manual is sitting next to you and he actually talks. He convicts you of sin. He will point you in the right direction. And so when we look at the identity of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God, Trinity. He's a person. The Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the new covenant. And the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. He is the helper. God, he, is, he, is like, he is everything that God could possibly give you all in one in you. But here's where that car illustration is helpful. He doesn't get in the driver's seat. He sits right next to you. He's the co-pilot. And we'll take a look at that a little bit later. So now we've looked at our identity I want to move to the second point, and I want to take a look at what is the work of the Holy Spirit. So once again, in this specific sermon, we're, we're taking a look at multiple texts, and we're trying to build a healthy theology of the Holy Spirit. We know the identity of the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at the work of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to the work of God in redemption... When I say that word redemption, let me uh, back up and just make sure we, we know. The Bible is one simple story. It is one story beginning with God created and man sinned. And the entire book then follows through to talk about God's rescue plan. One story pointing us towards one key truth is that we're broken and we can't save ourselves, and we desperately need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. 
When we talk about the story of the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all play a role in this big story. So this one big story we call the story of redemption. Redemption is is, uh, a term for how God bought us back out of our sin and our slavery and bought us for himself. The Bible tells us we were slaves to sin. The Bible tells us that God bought us and he purchased us for himself. So we we use that term, redempt, or you were redeemed. And so in that story of redemption, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit play different roles. If you look behind me, God the Father initiates the plan of salvation. God the Son, Jesus, accomplishes our salvation. Right? It was Jesus who takes on human flesh. It was Jesus who lived the perfect life. It was Jesus who died and substituted his life for you on the cross. And it's Jesus' resurrection that gives us confidence that sin hasn't just, in theory, been dealt with. But God raising Jesus from the dead shows us that sin has actually been dealt with. Your sin is forgiven. The penalty of sins is broken. And we see that Jesus' resurrection makes clear that God has accepted Jesus' payment. So what about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit applies the gift of salvation to all of those given to Christ. The Holy Spirit applies. So the Father is the one who has initiated the plan of salvation. The Son is the one who has accomplished your salvation. There is no salvation if Jesus doesn't die on the cross. The Holy Spirit is the one that God sent to work out His plan of salvation. And so let's focus in specifically on the Holy Spirit's role of how He works out that salvation. I want to take a look specifically at how the Holy Spirit, from start to finish, works out your salvation, past, present, and future. So let's look at the past. If you are in Christ today, remember that that in Christ is very specific language. I'm using it very specifically, very technically, because this is a new position the Scriptures tell us that we have. In Christ. So if you are in Christ today, it was the work of the Holy Spirit who brought about your salvation. The Holy Spirit works to convict the world of sin. Let's look at John 16, 7-8. Going back to a passage that we had looked at earlier, same chapter, Jesus tells his disciples this. John 16, 7 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Notice what verse 8 says. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. How is it that you come to have conviction about sin, to have a conviction of the fact that you are not righteous and that God is perfectly righteous? How is it that God works in your life a healthy fear of judgment? When I say healthy, what I mean is that instead of simply fearing God, that you run to God, recognizing that God's judgment is real. And yet, His promises are true as well. So the Holy Spirit, very clearly in John 16, 7 8, is the one who works to bring about conviction of sin. If the Holy Spirit was not at work in our world, there would be no conviction of sin, there would be no conviction of righteousness, there would be no conviction of judgment. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures also tell us that the Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. This is a classic passage. This is John 3, verses 3 to 6. You know the story. More than likely, you might not know the text. This is the story of Nicodemus. Starting in verse 3, John 3, verses 3 to 6, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice that word, born again. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Here's the summary. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. They're talking about uh, entering the kingdom. Jesus makes very clear, Nicodemus, you don't come into the kingdom through the flesh. It's impossible. He says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, thinking like us, asked Jesus, that's impossible. How can anyone be born again? Nobody, think about it. We know that language. Poor Nicodemus didn't know that language. Nobody had ever told him ever in his life, you need to be born again. And so that needs to be explained to him, just like it would to me or to you. If that's the first time you've ever heard the language born again, that makes no sense. We don't have an understanding of what that language means. Well, Jesus tells us what it means. He says, that which is the flesh is of the flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. How do we become born of the Spirit? It's only by the Holy Spirit. We can't make ourselves born of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes you to be born again. Remember when we looked at the language of the New Covenant? Was any of that language dependent upon you? No. God says, I will make a covenant. I will take out your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will make a new covenant. When you look at this language, can we cause ourselves to be born again? No. We're flesh. Then what can cause us to be born again? The Holy Spirit. So the first thing that we see, the work of the Holy Spirit in regard to salvation... The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and judgment and righteousness. The Holy Spirit causes us to be born again. Now, if you're thinking, oh, I don't know, Sam. Can you, can you give me another verse? Yes. 1 Peter 3, 1, 3 to 4. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. Here's the next phrase. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Theologically, how does this work? God causes you to be born again. How? Through the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at how the Holy Spirit is working out your salvation. If the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about your salvation, let's talk about sanctification. This is in the present. So if you are in Christ, it is the Holy Spirit who is working to bring about your sanctification. There's another word that you might not be familiar with. What does sanctification mean? Sanctification, in simple terms, is the Holy Spirit working in you to make you holy, or to make you more like Christ. To make you more like His Son. The language that we see in Romans 8.29 is, is said to be conformed to the image of your Son. That is what God is doing. And bringing you to faith, God is working to conform you to the image of His Son. So when we use the word sanctification, that's all it means. is God's work in you to move you towards faith, to move you towards love, to move you towards maturity, to move you to, uh, towards living and loving more like Jesus. Now, where is the scripture that helps us see the work of sanctification? It's the same one. One of the best verses we can look at is Ezekiel 36, the New Covenant. Ezekiel 36, 25-27, I want us to go there again. And I want us to look exactly just at the end. It says, And I will put my spirit within you. And notice this language again. It says, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How is the Holy Spirit working? The Holy Spirit works. God takes out your heart of stone. And when it, it talks about your heart of stone, what is a heart of stone? The Bible tells us that what happens because of sin is that our heart becomes hard. And we no longer become responsive to God. In fact, if you, you know this in, in your own daily life, right? Have, have you ever gotten angry with a person? I'm sure we all have. 
and we have a, uh, we have a witness here in the front. You know, Lisa, Lisa was the first person. Lisa was the only one that would be willing to mention that uh, that she, yes, God is working the sanctification process. When you get angry, simple test. Does your heart tend to grow more loving, kind, and affectionate? Do your words grow more gentle, and are you more patient? Or is the opposite true? Is that when, when you harden your heart, when, when you make decisions that are hurting somebody else, we see that the, the natural effect is there's a hardening effect. And God tells us that this is what's happening with sin. That when we choose sin, that our hearts are becoming harder and harder against God. And so God has taken steps to remove our heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. And in addition to giving us that heart of flesh, it says that the Holy Spirit will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so how is the Holy Spirit working out our sanctification? Our sanctification is being worked out because the Holy Spirit is working to make us sensitive to sin, to say no to sin, and to be able to say yes to God. How does He do that? I already told you. He's not in the driver's seat. He doesn't tell you where to go. But God gives us in the Holy Spirit a conscience to say, that is the wrong way. Don't do this. Right? And so now, to sin, we actually have to step over the Holy Spirit. Because we have a conscience that tells us this is not the will of God. God's word, word has said this is wrong. And so the Holy Spirit is constantly reminding us. Let's move to the future. How is the Holy Spirit working out your, 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 uh, the plan of redemption in your life? Let's look at the future. All of those who are in Christ, that is, all who are uh, in whom the Holy Spirit is working, He's working to bring us into God's glory. It's what we call glorification. We've taken a look at three things. In the past, salvation. In the present, sanctification. In the future, glorification. What's that word glorification? Glorification simply means the moment where God brings you in to His eternal kingdom. The moment that you die, or the moment that Jesus comes back, either one, where God brings you safely into His eternal kingdom to experience all of the blessings that God has promised you. That is what glorification is. Ephesians 1, let's look at verses 11 to 14. And we're going to take a look at how the Spirit moves us towards glorification. It says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who, walks, who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, here is where we specifically see the Holy Spirit working, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Here's the illustration. I'll take the word directly from the text. How many of you have made a down payment before? Down payment. Okay. A down payment is basically earnest money. Let's say we are buying a car or buying a house or we're, uh, we're uh, entering some kind of contract where we're going to exchange money or we're going to exchange uh, something of value for something that we're purchasing, Right? So a down payment, let's say, we'll put it with a house. I'm buying a house here in Germany. And I've negotiated the contract. I've settled on the exact house, the exact location. I've been working with the bank. The bank has said, okay, uh, here is, uh, we're, we're willing to, to give you the house. It's going to be 100,000 euro. We all wish it was only 100,000 euro. Uh, we'll, for, for fun, we'll use 100,000 euro. Um, but, to, to begin or enter into that agreement, they usually ask for a down payment. Maybe it's 25%. So, in good faith, I will put down 25,000 euro 
because my intention is, is that, yes, I want that house, and I'm putting down this money, because my full intention is to, to fulfill all of those payments to make this house mine, right? And we, we, we call this money, sometimes that down payment, money in earnest or good faith money. Because if you go back in the contract, you don't get that money back. That's a part of the agreement. If you said you're going to buy the house and you put the money down, that down payment you don't get back if you go back on the contract. Very interestingly, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is God's down payment on your life that He will bring you all the way home. Glorification. The Holy Spirit, it says, here's the exact words, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance. When you came to faith, God has brought you into His kingdom and He has promised an inheritance for all of those who are in Christ. What is the down payment on that inheritance? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to you so that you know God basically put down earnest money. Not only have I promised you salvation in Christ, right now, Right now, I'm, I'm making a deposit, a down payment, and you are receiving the Holy Spirit so that you could know not only now have I been saved, but the Holy Spirit, this, this GPS that I said, this guide that is getting the car, will bring me all the way home. God will accomplish your future glorification. So let's quickly summarize the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is in your salvation, He convicts the world of sin. He causes us to be born again. The Holy Spirit's work is in your sanctification. He is literally, according to Ezekiel, causing you or helping you to walk in God's statutes and to obey God's rules. And lastly, the Holy Spirit is involved in your glorification. Is that the Holy Spirit... God doesn't bring us to salvation and basically say, Have at it, guys. Get to heaven. Get on it. God brings us to faith and then He gives us the Holy Spirit to work out our salvation and then the Holy Spirit is the promised seal of our inheritance where God is promised, I will bring you all the way to your future glorification. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's lastly quickly look at how you partner with the Holy Spirit. We've been answering these three questions. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Now we end with how do I partner with the Holy Spirit. Turn to Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. Because God's Word, as we look at this text, is going to reveal an important truth to us. It's the truth that we've talked about already, that the Holy Spirit is not in the driver's seat. He is the passenger. But Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, show us this partnership and how it works. This is Paul writing. He says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only uh, in my presence, but also much more in my absence, notice these words, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So two things I want you to see from this verse. Truth number one, we are to work out our salvation. Now, that might be messing with your mind here a little bit. How do we, how do we, what we work? We work for our salvation? No. We don't work for our salvation. We work out our salvation. I don't want to get too technical, but God has worked salvation into us. We work out the salvation, right? There's a huge difference. We don't earn salvation. We don't work for salvation. We can't. But this passage tells us to work out our salvation. Is Paul somehow teaching here that we earn our salvation by our good works? No. Paul is saying work out the salvation that God has worked in with fear and trembling. We'll get to that in a second. The second thing I want you to see is this is that we work out our salvation, but notice what God is doing. God is at work in you. 
to will and to work His good pleasure. So when we think about the Christian life, the Christian life is a partnership. What is our part to play? It's a partnership. We work and God works. And we work together. That's what Philippians clearly teaches us. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that working out is absolutely based on the fact that God has worked in your salvation and now He's working presently. It says He's working to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so we have this beautiful picture. The Christian life is a partnership. God doesn't save us and then expect us to somehow arrive on heaven's doorstep 10, 15, 20 years later. God brings us to Himself and He gives us His Spirit and the Holy Spirit is at work with us. We work and God works. So can I give you an example of what it looks like? What does that partnership look like? And this is where we'll close. Yes, I can give you an example of what that partnership looks like. Galatians 5, turn there. Galatians 5, 16 to 24. It's one of the passages that you probably, if you don't know by heart, you're very familiar with the language. In Galatians 5, it says, Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Remember? Law was old covenant. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the change. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let me give you a little helpful illustration. How many of you have seen the, the cartoons? Angel on one shoulder. Who's on the other? Who's on the other? The devil. Right now, we've got to change the theology, but the idea is somewhat right. The cartoons constantly show us that there's a war within, right? There's a little angel on one side to... to try to talk to us about doing good things. There's a little devil on the other side, right? Usually he's read, uh, in my, the American versions, he had a little pitchfork. Now, that thought is at, at one and the same time silly, but it's profoundly theological true, theologically true. It's not the devil and an angel. What the Bible tells us is that inside of you, There's the flesh and the spirit, and they are at war. And so those little comic strips, those little cartoons, actually point to a true fact about life. That in every decision that we make, there's two voices going on. And Galatians tells us that they're set against each other. The flesh and the spirit living inside of you are adamantly opposed to one another. And so what does it look like to partner with the Holy Spirit? Well, the Scriptures make clear that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's either or. So think about it like this. How many of you know the saying that you are what you eat? Right? What what you put in your body, what you put in your body, the fuel that you put in your body, will determine how healthy you are, right? You, if you eat junk, you will, you will not uh, consistently, you, I mean, you're going to be moving towards bad health. Bad food in is that your body needs healthy food. And that if you make uh, a, a series of bad choices, then we know that you won't be healthy. At first, it's maybe not noticeable. But more and more bad choices will, will lead to you having an unhealthy life. 
and probably unhealthy lifestyle. So when we talk about the flesh and the spirit, when God saved you, the old man, the flesh, is still there. But inside of the flesh, God has placed His Spirit to help you pursue your salvation, your sanctification, your glorification. And so the Bible simply says, walk in the Spirit. How do you do that? Basically, what you feed will grow. If you feed the Holy Spirit, if you walk in obedience, if you follow God's will, then you will naturally begin to produce the fruits of the Spirit. If you say yes to the flesh, if you say yes to sin, the Bible tells us the exact word it says. Uh, it says, uh, let me look at my notes here. It says, there's works of the flesh or the fruits of the Spirit. Those are your only two choices. Your life produces works of the flesh or fruits of the Spirit. And guess what you get to do in your partnership? You decide who gets fed. Your choices determine whether you are feeding the Spirit and giving the Holy Spirit the fuel to move you towards sanctification or whether you are choosing the sin that will result in the works of the flesh. And this is how we choose to walk in the Spirit. So let's end our time this morning. As we come to a close... I told you the goal for today is to build a healthy foundation and a framework for you of who the Holy Spirit is, of what are the works of the Holy Spirit, and lastly, how you can partner with the Spirit. Who is God? Or who is the Holy Spirit? He's God. He's the fulfillment of new covenant. He's the paraclete. What are His works? The Holy Spirit has worked to bring about your salvation, He's working to produce in you sanctification. He will one day completely bring you all the way home and bring about your glorification. How do you partner with the Holy Spirit? You walk in the Spirit. You either choose to feed the Spirit or you choose to feed the flesh. If you're here this morning and you are in Christ... Let me just encourage you. May this sermon be an encouragement for you to give praise and glory to an amazing God who has given you not only salvation, He has given you Himself to walk out your salvation and He has promised that one day He will bring you all the way home. This morning, if you are not in Christ, here's my desperate plea. All the things that we have just talked about, your salvation, your growth, your eventual glorification are not available to those outside of Christ. I don't say that in a judgmental way. I say that because God has made them freely available to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you are wrestling with who Jesus is or wrestling with your faith, I invite you to have a conversation with myself, have a conversation with, if you're coming from Nordstrand, have a conversation with Emil or your leaders. But know this, everything God has promised to you is promised to us in Christ. And those who are outside of Christ do not receive God's goodness and grace and mercy, but are under His wrath. 